This episode of The Biggest Table is brought to you in part by Wild Goose Coffee. Since 2008, Wild Goose has sought to build better communities through coffee. And for our listeners, Wild Goose is offering a special promotion of 20% off a one-time order using the code TABLE at checkout. To learn more and to order coffee, please visit wildgoosecoffee.com. Being an election year, there will be calls for civility, especially in Christian circles and churches. But Kathy Kahn and her co-author Matt, in their new book, Loving Disagreement, believe that Christians are not called to be civil, but rather, through the fruit of the Spirit, embrace the discomfort and hard work of loving disagreement. Listen in as Kathy and I have a rich conversation about the fruit of the Spirit and its call on Jesus' followers to engage in the hard work of the betterment and shalom of the whole community, and not just the select privileged few. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Biggest Table. I am your host, Andrew Camp, and in this podcast, we explore the table, food, eating, and hospitality as an arena for experiencing God's love and our love for one another. And today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Kathy Kahn. Kathy Kahn is a writer, speaker, and yoga teacher. She is the author of Loving Disagreement, which was awarded the 2023 Book of the Year by Inglewood Review of Books. She's also the author of Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up, and Alabaster Guided Meditation, Psalms, Volume 1 and 2. She's also a contributing author to, of More Than Serving Tea and Voices of Lament. Kathy is also the board chair for Christians for Social Action, co-host of the Fascinating Podcast, and president of the Northwestern University Asian and Asian American Alumni Club. A former newspaper reporter in Green Bay and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Kathy also spent more than two decades in vocational ministry, where she focused on leadership development and training leaders in diversity and justice. She holds a Bachelor's of Science degree in journalism from Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. She is based in the north suburbs of Chicago and blogs at kathycon.com, is on threads, Instagram, and TikTok as Miss Kathy Kahn, and posts at facebook.com slash Kathy Kahn author. Wow. Thanks for joining me today, Kathy. <laughs> it's like, wow, that is that me? Yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> no. So no, I really appreciate this. Once I saw your book was awarded that book of the year by Inglewood, and I'm a big fan of Inglewood and Chris Smith. Um, I picked it up immediately and really loved the work you and Matt did in the book. Uh, but before we dive into the book, I would love to hear what was the role of food and hospitality in your life growing up? Oh, goodness. So um, I would say I remember lots of smells and food and gatherings of family and friends, particularly folks we knew through church. Um, and so hospitality was abundant. However, it felt different because it really wasn't around my friends. So I was a child in the 70s and 80s, and Korean food, Asian food was still considered stinky and hmm. suspect. And it is so fascinating to me to see the rise of not only Asian American culture, but specifically around Korean culture. So like K-dramas, K-pop, and Korean food, like Korean barbecue, um, seeing influencers, white influencers making kimchi and posting videos about it. That just blows my mind. I'm so confused around that. Um, and so when I think of hospitality, I think of, for me growing up, a hesitation because there was so much stigma around what we ate and the unfamiliarity of what we ate. And then I think a lot of immigrant children, and I know a lot of Asian American children of immigrants, we talk about how our ice smelled. So our ice makers, um, one, we don't we don't use a lot of ice. We don't drink drinks with ice. But when we did use the ice, it smelled of garlic because our food had so much garlic mm. in it. And we kept garlic in the fridge and kimchi in the fridge. And so when I think of hospitality growing up, it was very much an open door to people we could trust. So yeah, so you've 
so with what I'm gathering you're saying is within the Korean American culture, there was an open door, but within your friends at a school around white, there was much hesitation and even maybe isolation for you. Yeah. I, I think that there was a lot of hesitation because, um, we were the first family of color in that elementary school that we knew of. And, um, and there was a lot of teasing and there was a lot of bullying. And so there was a lot of uncertainty and isolation and confusion. That was not my experience prior to moving in second grade. We had been in the city of Chicago. So that was a very different experience of hospitality. That literally was an open door to friends from you know, the Philippines and Greece. And I still remember how every home smelled different. And we loved that. That was very normal. But moving to the suburbs was very like, ugh. Right. As you've then reflected on your journey as a child and being an immigrant, where, where do you continue to see food as an arena of, of hope and restoration? But then also, where, where does food still and the table, where is it still used as a means of isolation and boundary keeping? Sure. Um, I think uh, for me and our family, so my husband and my three children, especially when the three kids were growing up, we were surprised at how excited and willing they were around our food. And, and so our, our table and hospitality grew out of their lack of fear and lack of that teasing, that experience. And so my kids all took in a thermos, the different soups that I would make and their friends would smell it and go, Oh, that sure smells and looks better than my sandwich. Um, And so we made sure that when their friends came over and we made sure that the hospitality we showed was abundant, it was always, of course, Mm. you can have your friends over. Of course, they can come and stay, was to make as normal our family's hospitality and food experience to the other kids. So it was always about offering and explaining that we don't understand why everybody doesn't have a rice cooker that sings. Everybody should have a rice cooker that sings. That should be the normal experience of children. Um, and always offering food. Like, do you want to try this? If you don't prefer it, that's totally okay. But this is what we're having. Um, and we found that that was uh, a way to expand our hospitality and our hearts, as mm. well as open people into our homes. Um, now in adulthood, we try to make sure that food and the table is not an isolating experience. And really what that has meant for us is to learn about the needs and desires of our friends. So instead of the, you know, the ethnic food conundrum, it has been uh, becoming good friends with people who are vegetarians or Mm. vegans and realizing, oh, that that's a whole nother experience. So how do we make our table welcoming to them? Hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and even in your book, you mentioned just the role of community, you know, of the fruit of the spirit, that the fruit of the spirit isn't for me individually, but it's for the good of the community, which was right. such a great love. I loved that perspective. Um, and challenged um, for me. And so, yeah, it just sounds like as you think about the table, the table becomes more of what's good for the community and not just for me. Right. Um, right. You know, and, and then what I also loved in your book as we transition to your book, because uh, I was just reviewing it this week for the podcast and just was challenged anew and afresh, but it was what I was reminded looking through it was there's a lot of sitting and discomfort when it comes to the fruit of the spirit. Can, can you talk about that? Because I don't usually think of discomfort when I think of the fruit of the spirit. I think of warm, <laughs> fuzzy feelings. Oh, sure. And I think that that's 
probably how a lot of us were taught about the fruit of the spirit, right? Like literally pictures of fruit. So um, because the fruit of the spirit is moving us towards community and the good of the whole, the flourishing of the whole, that means we need to get out of our kind of individualized thinking, which is very dominant in the West, especially in the U.S. culture. It's very much about my comfort, my care, right? It's called self-care, not community care. And so um, as we were writing about it, I could not help but think that, yeah, everything about this life is sitting comfortably in the discomfort, in exploring and having hard conversations about why does this make you comfortable as a white man? And Mm -hmm. what could that cause discomfort for me? And that conversation is never, it's never going to be an easy one. Um, And unfortunately, it's not one that we foster in the context of a church or Christian community, right? It's always like, oh, we love each other because we're one in Christ without actually wrestling with the issues that spark the great things that we read about in scripture, right? Like, why do mm-hmm. we care about right. the widows? Well, because somebody was ignoring them. No, and you even mentioned in in an early chapter about that, just because you welcome somebody that, you know, people of color or, um, you know, women into your door doesn't mean they're actually welcomed. Welcomed, fully, you know, right. You know, and so there's a distinction between an open door and a seat at the table. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so how how then do we use the fruit of the spirit to invite more people to the table? Well, you know, as somebody who felt like I couldn't invite people to my table because it smelled or looked different, but also you know, kind of riding this wave of interest and curiosity around my culture, uh, it it is adjusting my table, (laughs) right? (laughs) It is, it's adjusting my table um, and a literal physical table. So we, we have a hand-me-down table in our kitchen and uh, without a leaf in the kitchen, it comfortably sits, seats six people, Mm -hmm. which is just one more than our actual family. Um, with all of the leaves in the table, we can squeeze about maybe 18. Okay. Um, which means to do that, we have to move the furniture in the other room out of the way. Hmm. And we have to pull tables that don't match or pull chairs that don't match from all over the, the house. Hmm. And I don't have 18 place settings. And so it's a mishmash. And so that's how I think about um, allowing the fruit of the spirit to change the table and to change what we bring and to change the actual table. It's not going to be a magazine layout. My home is never that. But I think that sometimes I felt like that was the image that we wanted, that the church wanted to present. It's a very beautiful neat, aesthetically Mm -hmm. pleasing table. Um, And when we pull out every single leaf and grab every single chair available in the house, it is not, it is not aesthetically pleasing, but it is beautiful. Hmm. It is chaotic. It is, where do we put all the food? Can we squeeze somebody here? We ran off out of forks, so we're going to grab the plastic forks. Um, do you want chopsticks? You don't do chopsticks. We'll grab you an extra fork. Oh, we ran out of cups. So that is how I envision the fruit of the spirit is, um, it is not, it is not beautiful in the way the world says is beautiful. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, no, that's a great image of, you know, it's not, the fruit of the spirit is not beautiful in how the world would define beauty. (laughs) There's so much there just to think about. Um, so then what, and what you were saying then also ties back to, to how you guys even opened the book of, we're not called to be civil. 
per se, you know, and there's this idea that the fruit of the spirit is this civility or nicety, whereas your table you just described is, is chaotic or um, mismatched. Um, and so then what, as you know, we're in an election year and nobody, you know, my wife and I, we're not excited about this at no. all. And so there will be these calls for civility that, you know, we think about. And so just based on even what you said, how, how do we move past civility and into this chaotic beauty that you were describing around the table? It's so f- interesting to me because I find civility exhausting. I don't know about you. I find it exhausting because there is a lot of like holding back and pretending that um, everything is fine when nothing is fine. And so Mm -hmm. one invitation there is, can you have honest conversations with just a handful of people? You don't need to have all of the honest conversations with everyone you come across right away. That, that, is not what Matt and I are asking or inviting people to. But I think that even in our close friendships, in our families, especially, we hear this a lot, um, this dread around the holidays because you don't want to talk about politics or religion, is if you can't have those hard conversations with the people you say you love the most, I don't. I honestly don't know if we have any hope, Um, but it is that it is that civility is as uncomfortable as is having these hard disagreements and loving disagreements. And so are you going to pick and choose? And I would say that the invitation to any Christian is to choose the loving disagreement because that is what God invites us to. Um, And what does that look like? It looks like not picking the holiday dinner table because maybe that's not the most conducive to real hard conversations, but picking and choosing wisely and maybe intentionally setting time to have some of those conversations because it's an election year and there are things that are at stake. (laughs) No, for sure. And two, I think as, you know, I reflect, you know, on my own journey and the discomfort I have and the desire for civility versus, you know, real meaningful conversation is I'm always afraid of saying the wrong thing or that relationship will be broken. Um, And you point out that, you know, in the book, intent doesn't minimize harm. And so how... How do we do this well in a way that I know I'm going to say something wrong at some right. point, right? But then, how do I have the courage to still lean in um, as a white middle class male um, in this world? You need to be okay with being fully human, <laughs> right? And and so, I mean, yeah. we you think that that's like, oh, well, yeah, duh, but. Somewhere along the line, we have forgotten to honor the humanity of one another. And so um, for me, it is a a level of frustration when um, non-people of color are so fearful of making mistakes that they choose to pretend to be perfect and never learn the art of apology Mm. and repentance and repair. And so, you know, instead of thinking of it as I'm afraid of making a mistake for all of us to frame it as I am going to enter fully into my humanity with humility. We all make mistakes. How do we then approach the other person, people, community and say, yeah, I, that was a bad, that was a bad one. I am so sorry. Here is what I've learned. This is my mistake. I have a lot of learning to do. How can we repair 
this relationship. And I have to tell you, I have seen that so few times. It makes Mm. me so sad, (laughs) so sad and disappointed. (laughs) Yeah, no, the embracing of one's humanity and, you know, that we're all in this together, but also, yeah, that we can be okay with each other's frailties and humanity, but that doesn't then gloss over the real harm that people of color um, or minorities experience. And I think that's where it's really, it it can be challenging. Sure. Um, Oh yeah, absolutely. I, um, I've been in this quote unquote work for 30 years and, um, I, I am so surprised at how particularly white people are so afraid of having their actions labeled as racist. And my response has been, I recognize that that can be a hard uh, label. Not that you are a racist, but that your action was racist. Mm. And that hurts. Can you for mm, 30 seconds sit with the hurt and harm done to the person on the receiving end of that racism and know that that is every day? And so I do think that there's something missing, particularly in the church and the willingness to sit in that pain and discomfort you know, we're headed into Lent. So I'm seeing all of these ads around like, oh, journey with us, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I wish we could sit in that Good Friday pain and uncertainty for longer than a weekend. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Because even that, yes, that is, you know, the the cycle and calendar of the church is that um, it really is great that people want to jump into Lent, but really it's that uncertainty and pain and discomfort of Good Friday. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I think for white listeners, that's an invitation for all of us. It's just that some of us have to live in it longer than you do. Um, right. Right. And, and that the impact, yes, is much more than your intent, but also if we don't cling to the hope and belief that there is forgiveness, then I don't know what we believe in as Christians. Hmm. Um, and you may not get that forgiveness from the person that you have harmed. And we have to be okay with that. Right? Yeah. We have to be okay with that, that we can't make everything okay. Hmm. And that there is not even just sitting at the Good Friday, but sitting in the uncertainty of Saturday that, you know, sometimes we don't know. Yeah. Yep. What, you know where resurrection is going to come from or right. even if resurrection will happen. Right. Uh. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I want to believe, I think Matt out of the two of us is more hopeful. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to believe that in that tension and discomfort is where the fruit of the spirit also comes in is that then we can sit with patience and kindness mm. and goodness, even when things don't turn out our way. Right. Yeah. Wow. Because <laughs> there, I don't know. Hold on. I'm trying to gather mm-hmm. my thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, because what you just said is sitting in that discomfort will then bring out the fruit of the spirit. And yet, 
in my tradition growing up in the white evangelical church, like the discomfort was never part of the fruit of the spirit. Like it was right. the discomfort is in the works of the flesh, not in the fruit of the spirit. Right. Whereas your point of view is actually the works of the flesh actually may be more comfortable than the actual fruit of of the spirit. So and, what, and it, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, and and even that I think is part of the um the confusion in where I sit. So I I have been in white evangelical spaces for a long time as well, and currently am kind of adjacent still in in the US, you can't get away from it, is this disconnect between the fruit of the spirit and the flesh. Like, how does the fruit of the spirit actually live out in our lives? Well, that has to incorporate our flesh. That has to incorporate, like you said, the table is not just a metaphor. It It is an actual table and hospitality mm -hmm. isn't just in our soul and spirit. It's actually physical. And so um, I, I think why white evangelicalism has always been so confusing to me is that it always ends up happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It always ends up happy for an individual mm -hmm. or maybe a small community, but never for the whole, because we can't move there. We can't move to that discomfort. And so, um, I, I, I do believe that very much the discomfort of my growing up experience, my childhood, the tradition of the Korean immigrant church, the history of Korea and the peninsula and the divided country, um, that fully informs my spirit and my body is that mm -hmm. it's not always going to be a happy ending. And yet, yet I'm still invited and have the wonderful opportunity to say yes into walking into the fruit of the spirit. Yeah. Like the fruit of the spirit has to be an embodied lived out posture. Like you just said, it's mm -hmm. not a metaphor. It's not <laughs> pie in the sky. Right. Um, right. And, and you, you're a yoga teacher. So how has teaching yoga then helped you embody <laughs> and, and embrace this embodiedness that I think we're hesitant to sometimes embrace. Right. Um, I uh, started practicing yoga in my late 30s, and it was just an excuse to get out of the house because the kids were young. <laughs> I did not think I would be a yoga teacher, so I went through the training really to write about the experience, especially as a Christian, because hmm. there is so much movement around that. Like Christians cannot do X, Y, and Z. Um, and so for me, uh, being a yoga teacher and practicing yoga, I have found that it actually connects me much deeper to uh, the Holy Spirit and mm. being able to be present for other people who are very different than I am. So when I teach, I don't know who in the room is a Christian or not. I don't care. I don't know about their uh political stances. Um, all I can do is see what I see. And what I see are people from all walks of life, different body types, different ages, um, different races and ethnicities. And what the invitation for me as a teacher is to set, you know, that metaphorical table mm -hmm. that allows everyone to connect with their bodies. And that has made me much more empathetic and in tune with what my limitations are and where I have more flexibility than other people to be mindful of that when I cue something to give people the freedom to do or not do whatever mm. I'm cueing. And that in turn has been such a good practice for me out in the world because it's the same thing. I cannot assume I know everything about a person based on what I see. 
And so mm. how can I, even I, as a woman of color, still approach people with um, empathy and an understanding that they are fully human, just like I am. And I come with assumptions just like they do. Um, and I, I want to believe and have been given feedback that, yeah, my classes, even though they were hard, are um, accessible. Hmm. And um, one of the best um, compliments, pieces of feedback I got from a client recently was, it was even before class started, she just came over and she was like, you just have this energy about you. And I want to thank you for that. Like, I want to come in and I want to see you. And I thought, hmm. you know, I don't know if I got that kind of feedback as a professional Christian in professional vocational ministry. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. like, I don't know how many pastors or former pastors out there just got people who interacted with them regularly saying, you know, I don't know what you do, but gosh, there's something about you that is so welcoming. <laughs> And and so I would say for me, that embodied practice mm. and what I bring as a teacher is I'm bringing the fruit of the spirit. That embodied practice um, challenges me to be that person to a group of people who do not know anything else about me. Like they don't know this side of me. <laughs> no, right. Yes. Yeah. And so you're you're there just to welcome them and to yeah. and to create a space in which they can then be more present, yeah, um, to their own bodies, yeah, uh, you know. And I love that phrase you use that you know it's hard but it's accessible, mm -hmm. um, which I feel like that's such a apt metaphor for this cultivating this fruit of the spirit that it's not easy, right? But it is accessible, mm -hmm. uh, and so how how do we how do leaders or how does anybody then help, you know, make it accessible, but don't, we don't water it down um, yeah, and make it th the toxic positivity that you, you rail against, um, or you yes. speak against in, in the book yes. as well. Oh, I definitely rail against in other places for sure. Uh, yeah. you know, it, a lot of it is what Matt and I wrote in loving disagreement, which is, we also touch on the things that we struggle with. Mm -hmm. and have failed at. Uh, we have talked a lot about why there were certain chapters, certain fruit of the spirit that we wanted to write about and why we didn't want to write about others, which was like, this one's really hard for me. I don't want to do it. <laughs> I don't want to do it. Uh, and the crazy thing is, as Christians, I don't know why we think this is optional. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and why we think that this should be easy when there are so many other phrases we glean from scripture that say, oh, this is, you know, life of a Christian is hard and challenging. So why do we think that this is going to be anything else? Um, I, I, and I also don't know why hard is bad. Right. Yeah. Right. I, hard is not going to be bad. Challenging is not bad. Failure is not bad. And again, I think it's part of the myth of the United States and American culture is that it is all good and it's only good if it succeeds in, you know, creating something. Um, sometimes it's just failure. And we have to learn from it. And when we don't, we recreate it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, for your listeners, it, it is, it's hard, but accessible and it's human. Hmm. It's, it's being human. I don't know why we think that everything is supposed to be easy. Yeah. You know, cause if you think about a normal fruit tree, it takes years for it to even start to bear fruit. Yeah. And yet we think the fruit of the spirit is in 
easy, instantaneous right once we yeah. become Christians. Yes, yes. And, uh, um, and, and I don't have any fruit trees because I live in the Midwest and um, I could grow apples. <laughs> we have, we have apple trees in the back, but what we learned is that we don't have the right other kind of apple tree so that it, you know, it, the, it, the cross pollinization kind of thing. Okay. Um, and so I have friends in California and they talk about their neighborhoods where there are like so many fruit trees. You can just like grab fruit off the sidewalk it boggles my mind, but right. I believe them. Um, that, that hard work again is not about your individual, I get my orange, right? It, it's for the community. It's for the whole. And, um, and I think a lot about, again, that metaphor and the reality of the table is that my parents and their generation of immigrants, um, the work and sacrifice they did was not easy. It was very hard, but it wasn't just for themselves. It was for me and my generation and my kids' generation. And so what is that if not love? Right. You know, what is that if not patience? Um, what is that if not perseverance? And so I, I do think and want to invite all of your listeners like life is not supposed to be easy and it never has even for people of privilege and there's a glossing over that and so if we think to the reality of life how can we really look back and see the fruit of the spirit um and how we need it how we need it. No, for sure. Yeah. Um, huh. That's a good reminder that life's never been easy. Although I think so much of modern culture invites us to think of life as and wanting life as easy everywhere or easy always, mm -hmm. you know, um, or, you know, grocery stores, you can just go, if you live in a place where you have grocery stores, you can just go and grab whatever fruits and vegetables you want at any time of the year, you know, including right. strawberries in the dead of winter when, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's not how life works usually. No, uh, it isn't. It isn't. And again, going back to community, maybe, you know, for me and you, our lives have been easy in that way, but again, it's not just about us. No. Right. It's not just about mm -hmm. us. And so if we are actually living in the fruit of the spirit, we look beyond and go, Oh, it's not been easy. It's no. not easy. And yeah. Cause you also, you, you guys, when you were talking about peace and shalom, a word mm -hmm. that I think the white evangelical world loves, yes, but then misses the point where you say like shalom is for everyone. And that might mean some hard change or some discomfort on those in power. Yes. Um, which yes. I, I was like, oh, that's such a <laughs> challenging thought because, you know, when I was working at a church here in Flagstaff, we talked about shalom a lot, but never in what we need to give up in order to make yes. shalom accessible right. to everyone. Um, right. So what does that look like then? Or what, how does that w inform our practicing and our embodiedness? Um, so I'm, I'm giggling because I think of like, well, what, yeah, what are some of the practical things where it's either giving up or recognizing, choosing not to participate in, um, uh, I had had one at one time fantasies of living in Arizona. I love Arizona. Um, and, but then we started reading about the water, uh, rights and the fight over water. And how here in the Great Lakes, we're okay. Yeah. And that eventually we're going to see a bunch of you all want to move into this cold weather because we have so much water. And I thought, I don't want to give up my water. 
right? Um, and I think that that's probably the thought of folks in more arid communities. Like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to have to stop watering my grass. I don't, I want to be able to put down whatever I want in my yard. I want to keep that public pool or my private pool open, right? All of those types of things. And so I think in reality is um, needing to stop and think about where our comforts are actually hurting the whole um, big and little things, big and little things. Um, so some little things that sound ridiculous, like we have been composting for two decades and uh, that has been a practice that we have taught our kids and their friends. So their friends mm -hmm. all grew up knowing you put all of the banana peels in that little silver container. Now, is that going to change climate change? No, not my one little thing. Um, but it has been the mindset right. that shifted us completely to how we buy things, where we throw away, mm -hmm. what we reuse, how we recycle. Um, uh, I regularly make it a practice to go like several months and I don't buy anything new except food. Hmm. Right. Right. And, and people are like, well, like what else would you be buying? I have to avoid target. I cannot go to target because, Oh, I need that. No, I don't need this. Nobody in my right. family needs another pair of socks. So I think it's yeah. big things like that. And then mm -hmm. little things like that. And big things you said it's an election year. Yeah. Um, I, I think one of the discomfort things we need to give up is being civil. I think we need to have some hard conversations with people who differ for, mm. from us, have differing opinions about politics and policy. Right. Because there are so many things at stake. Hmm. What are those things at stake? You know, as you as you look at the election as a woman of color and you know, what, what are those big things for you? Uh, I think um, voting rights have been chipped away at for the last um, several years. I think civil rights have been chipped away at. Um, some listeners may disagree, but I think abortion rights, abortion care is health care for women, whether or not you personally would choose or want to have it is healthcare, and um, and I think uh, issues and concerns around the border, immigration, and migrants that we would allow people to drown at the border and say that is okay says a lot about our understanding of humanity. And so whether or not we agree on the politics, I think um, as a Christian, we need to have those conversations with people and ask the hard questions. Are we, are we okay with um, the death penalty and testing right. new ways to kill people? Are we okay? I think those are the things that we're, we, hmm. what is at risk is our understanding of humanity. Yeah, and whether we will embrace the Jesus way, yeah, or yeah. polarized me first mentality that wants what's mine and what, or to grasp and hold on to power, right, and even the illusion of power, yes, um, yeah, you know, which was never theirs, ours for there anyway. It feels like, um, you know, and so no, that's. That's huge. And I think just the fruit of the spirit and cultivating this idea of the fruit of the spirit for the love of the community helps us begin to, to think through what those loving disagreements uh, can be in this election year. Yeah. Uh, you know, because you also mentioned that truth telling, you, you and Matt mentioned truth telling is not a fruit of the spirit. Whereas yeah. it seems like white evangelicals are, you know, and, and maybe it's broader, but, you know, we want to tell the truth regardless right. of what, how it feels or how it's received. Right. Um, and, right. and so what, what place does truth telling then have, um, 
as we cultivate the fruit of the spirit? Um, it, it, it isn't a fruit of the spirit. And so what is our priority in our relationships? Mm, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, right. And, and I, and it's so funny because a couple of years ago, there was a big wave of like, speak your truth and, you know, live your truth. And we had entertained even for raise your voice, some, some title around that idea of truth telling. And, um, and I, I believe that white evangelicalism hijacked this idea of being the only bearers of truth. Hmm. Uh, I come from a reporting background and really the goal there is not about truth. It's about facts. Right. Yeah. And, and so your truth and my truth can differ, but what are the facts? Hmm. And what's hard there is that as a person of faith, sometimes you don't know all of the facts. And so you just have to have faith, right? So where yeah. does truth telling come in the fruit of the spirit? It comes last. <laughs> <laughs> it's that is not the front end goal. And no. um and and I I think that part of my church experience especially in the white evangelical spaces was very much that was the tip of the spear. Mm -hmm. We're speaking truth, speak truth to power, um, forgetting that we may actually not be the ones who have the whole picture. Um, right. And so, you know, truth telling is there. I think that there is a place, um, I just had a conversation with somebody who was like, you're a reluctant prophet. <laughs> and I was like, I don't huh. like that. I don't want to be a prophet. <laughs> right. Cause there's a, a, there's a lot of the truth telling aspect right. to that. Um, but I don't lead with that. No, I don't lead with that. Mm -mm. And so as Christians, what are we leading with? we should be leading with the fruit of the spirit. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. As we begin to wrap up, um, a question I'd like to ask guests is, you know, and, and you've touched on it, but you know, as we summarize sort of, I guess, what is the story you want the church to tell? I want the story to be about the flourishing of everyone. Not of the select. I want it to be the flourishing and the care of everyone and not just who's convenient. Yeah. Amen. Uh, no, thank you, Kathy. Your words have challenged me, you know, but also encouraged me, you know, and that's. Your book, you and Matt's book is, it's definitely worth a read in this year, just because I loved that it was co-written and that you guys bounced ideas off of each other, expressed where you have failed, where you struggle, you know, and presenting a loving disagreement through a book, um, what is possible um, for the church. So, no, thank you um, for this time, um, you know, and a few things before we wrap up. I like to end with a few fun questions in rapid fire. Yeah. Um, and have have it's fun to hear different people's responses. And so, what's one food you refuse to eat? Oh. Um <laughs> There's not a lot. Yeah. There's not a lot. Refuse to eat. Um, raw meat, like okay. a pate. I've done a pate, but yeah. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. 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 And then on the other end of the spectrum, what's the best thing you have ever eaten? Oh gosh. That is so hard. <laughs> um, it, I, the best food memory. How's that? Cause I can't Perfect. pick one best thing. Um, I always think about the kimchi jjigae that my dad would make an offer to me late at night. 
And that's the joke in our family. Like everybody else would say no, but I would be like, mm. okay, I'll eat it. And so I okay. think of those late nights and that kimchi jjigae as like the best food because it was mm. with beautiful intention and impact. And for those of us who don't know, what is kimchi jjigae? Yes, kimchi jjigae is, so kimchi, the fermented cabbage, the side dish of my people, um, mm -hmm. uh, once it has fermented um, kind of past its peak, you can still use it, and it's used in this stew. And mm. there are different variations of it. You can add all sorts of different things, um, but that's what kimchi jjigae is. Okay, awesome. And then finally, amongst chefs, there's a conversation about last meals, as in, if you knew you only had one last meal to enjoy. <laughs> and so if you knew you had one last meal to enjoy, Kathy, do you know what that would be and with whom you would share it with? Oh, that's so ridiculously hard. Okay, so I would <laughs> want to share it with as many of my like immediate friends and family. <laughs> yeah, right. And yep. it it would be... It would be a Korean meal. It would be mm. a small bowl of rice with like a bazillion side dishes, which is the great thing about a Korean meal is that you don't have to pick. It's just a bunch of side dishes and my dad's kimchi jjigae. Of course. Awesome. Well, thank you so much um, for this time, Kathy. Um, it's been a real joy and a privilege um, just to hear your heart um, in person versus just reading it. Um, and so... Thank you uh, for this time. Thank you. Yeah. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing it with others. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Biggest Table, where we explore what it means to be transformed by God's love around the table and through food. Until next time. Bye. <laughs>